The sermon text for today is from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. Christ. It is all about Christ. Our faith is called Christianity, right? Maybe even we could say Christianity. We are called Christians, right? We might even call ourselves, right, Christians. The church is the body of Christ. The scriptures testify about Christ. The gospel is a message about we are called to belong to. We place our faith in. We are saved by the blood of. We have been raised with, we are adopted as sons through, we find eternal life in, we are being conformed to the image of Christ, right? The world will be judged by Christ, right? As I said, it's it's all about Christ. Even our EPC tagline is what? It's pointing people to So it's to come as no shock when we encounter Peter's ministry, that his ministry is about. So what I think we'll see in our text today is Christ. In particular, we'll see three things. The miracles of Christ, the mercy of Christ, and the message of Christ. So as we journey through our, as we journey through the book of Acts, you know, Acts is like a, a drama-packed movie, right? Shifting scenes. So when we encounter Peter, right, we see, what is Peter doing? What was Peter doing the last time we read about Peter? What was the scene before? Right? So when we last heard of Peter, he along with John, they were sent to Samaria, to Samaria upon hearing that the Samaritans had received the word of God. We recall that it was in Samaria that Peter encounters Simon the magician. And then we know that's when Simon attempted to purchase the gift of God with the money, when he saw the Holy Spirit fall on the disciples. 
And then Peter was quick to rebuke Simon the physician and call him to repentance. And after this um, unfortunate episode with Simon, we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it says, They, referring to John and Peter, started back to Jerusalem. And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So a lot was happening during Peter's ministry. The Lord raised up Philip to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then after that, the Spirit of the Lord snatches Philip and takes him away to Azotos, where Philip continued to preach the gospel to all to the cities. We also see the Lord saving Saul and making Saul his chosen instrument to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to the children of Israel. And once Saul receives his sight and is filled with the Holy Spirit and is baptized, he proceeds to proclaim, to G- to proclaim Jesus in his synagogues in Damascus. And then after escaping from the Jews who plotted to kill him, we see Saul preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. So verse 31 serves as a great summary statement of all that has taken place in the early church. It reads like this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So what we see here is the fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus Christ promised to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Christ also promised the disciples in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. What we see here and continue to see in the rest of the book of Acts is that the Lord Jesus is building his church. The power of the Holy Spirit the preaching of the gospel, and the ministry of the, of the apostles. What we also see in the presence of Philip's and Saul's ministry was also an answer to prayer. We recall Jesus' words in Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Philip and Saul were laborers whom the Lord raised up and sent into his harvest. This reminds us that the Lord... It is the Lord who sends laborers into his harvest, and he is still sending laborers into the harvest today. So let us be faithful in praying for the laborers that he has sent and for the laborers that he will send. And let us also remember that we're all laborers to some degree and that there's a harvest among us, whether it's in our city, in our schools, in our workplace, or in our homes. I pray that we would be faithful in making Jesus known wherever the Lord has placed us. So as the scene shifts back to Peter, what do we find Peter doing? What we find Peter doing is what he's supposed to be doing. He's preaching the gospel and ministering to the saints. We see this in verse 32, which reads, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now the text doesn't explicitly say that Peter was preaching the gospel, but we know from Acts chapter 8, verse 25, that once Peter and John started back to Jerusalem, after their encounter with Simon Musician, they were preaching the gospel from village to village. So Peter continued to work and to preach the gospel as the Lord continued to raise up laborers. The fact that God had sent more laborers to the harvest was not a reason or an excuse for Peter to become lax or to grow weary. Nor is the fact that God has raised up many laborers in our day a reason for us to become lax or grow weary. We should let the presence of laborers be an encouragement to us. 
to participate in what the Lord is doing among his people. We also note that Peter's ministry was twofold. Not only did he preach the gospel to unbelievers, Peter preached the gospel to believers as well. The text says that Peter came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. This reminds us that Peter was obedient to his calling. We recall in John chapter 21 that Jesus called Peter to feed my lambs and to tend my sheep, to feed my sheep. It was during Peter's ordinary and normal ministry to the saints at Lydda that he encountered Aeneas. We read in verse 33, There Peter found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. You see, Peter wasn't looking for Aeneas, but in God's providence, he found Aeneas. Nor was Aeneas looking for Peter, but in God's providence, he was found by Peter. Similarly, we weren't looking for God's mercy, but in God's providence, his mercy found us. Brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as coincidence and and accidents in the kingdom of God. God was purposeful in pouring out mercy to Aeneas, just as he is purposeful in pouring out mercy to us. Now, the text doesn't say much about Aeneas. We don't know whether he was a believer or an unbeliever. And you know what? It really doesn't matter. Because what matters and what we do know is that he was in need of the mercy of Christ and in need of the message of Christ, just as we all are. Again, both believers and unbelievers alike need the mercy of Christ and they need the message of Christ. Many of you know that I go out on Wednesday evenings um, a few of you from here sharing our faith and, possum, and passing out uh, gospel tracts. One of the things that, you know, one of the many things that kind of, um, you know, twerk me is that you might hand a gospel tract to a person and they say, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, and you're a Christian. You know, as Christians, we never get past the gospel. Just because we're Christians, we need the gospel all the more. We don't ever get past the gospel. We just grow deeper in our understanding and our appreciation of the gospel. Let me jump off that soapbox for a second. (laughs) What the text does say about Aeneas was that he was bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. That's one thing that we do know. He was a paralytic. For you KJV people out there, Aeneas was sick with the palsy. We're not given the details or the severity of his paralysis, but we know that paralysis, it's an affliction of the nervous system. It results in the loss of motor power in the muscles. Furthermore, we know that being paralyzed limited the way Aeneas functioned, and undoubtedly it lessened his quality of life. Now consider the outlook for those who suffered from disease and illness in the times of the early church. We must remember that people in the first century had limited means to diagnose and to treat illnesses. One commentator puts it this way. The best educated people in biblical times had a meager understanding of human anatomy and physiology and even less knowledge about the nature of disease and its effect on the body. 
Successful treatment of disease and illness was dependent primarily on prompt, correct diagnosis, and the use of effective therapeutic agents. No one knew about bacteria and viruses. This fact hampered diagnosis. The main diagnostic tools were observation and superficial physical examination. The physician had few aids to use in his work. And because of this lack of knowledge, illness and disease was often attributed to sin. Even the disciples thought this way. You remember, right, in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples encountered a man who was blind from birth, the disciples proceed to ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So just as the works of God were displayed in the blind man, so too would the works of God be displayed in Aeneas, the paralytic. Now we know that in one sense that disease, illness, and affliction are a result of sin in general. Disease, illness, and afflictions, they're a result of the fall and the result of living in a fallen world. God made man good. We know this and we see this in the Bible and in Genesis. But then in Genesis 3 comes the fall in which Adam and Eve rebel against their creator. The impact of the fall summarized in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, once sin entered the world, people began to deteriorate and to die. We were all firsthand witnesses and participants of this suffering. Every time we see someone who's afflicted or when we ourselves are afflicted, it should cause us to long for the day when Jesus makes all things new. It should remind us that we have hope and that all of our suffering, if you are a believer, is temporary. Perhaps some of us can even relate to Aeneas in that we have medical conditions or chronic illnesses which prevent us from doing the things we desire. We are blessed to reap the benefits of modern medicine and technology, which often give us relief from pain and suffering, and sometimes they even cure our ailments. But this was not the case with Aeneas. In terms of relief from his physical suffering, he had no medicine, he had no cure. He had already been bedridden for eight years. More than likely, he'd given up all hope of being healed of his paralysis. It is against this backdrop that we see the miracle of Christ in Peter's ministry. Verse 34 reads, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And immediately he rose. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. A man who had been bedridden for eight years, and who was paralyzed, rises up. See, he was unlike the Atlanta Falcons. He rose up, right? (laughs) You know, sometimes I think we lose our appreciation for the miracles in the Bible because miracles, by definition, they're not common, and they're not something that perhaps any of us have witnessed. Or perhaps we have lost our appreciation for miracles Because we call events that are not really miracles, miracles. For example, people say childbirth is a miracle. 
All I would say is look around. <laughs> you see a lot of children here, and I would <laughs> bet that most of them happen through natural means. We know how they got here. <laughs> so children, as cute as they are, as beautiful as they are, they are not miracles, but they are blessings and gifts from God. So that begs the question, what is a miracle? Well, there are three ways in which we can define a miracle. The first way, a miracle is an extraordinary event, inexplicable in terms of ordinary forces. Definition two, a miracle is an event that causes the observers to postulate a supernatural personal cause. Definition number three, a miracle is an event that constitutes evidence of implications much wider than the event itself. I believe the healing of Aeneas pretty much fits all three of these definitions of a miracle. Well, first off, the healing of a paralytic through the means of spoken words would certainly qualify as extraordinary. There's nothing ordinary about a man being healed through the words of another man, regardless of what the word faith and prosperity teachers might preach. Now, we know that the healing of a paralytic was not completely unique to Peter. There are other instances in scriptures where paralytics are healed. Jesus healed paralytics on more than one occasion. In Matthew 8, we see Jesus healing the paralyzed servant of the centurion. In Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus healing a paralytic who was brought to him by the four men who removed the roof and lowered him down to where Jesus was. And in John chapter 5, we see Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. These are just a few examples of paralytics that were healed by Jesus. Undoubtedly, Peter was present for many of Jesus' healings, including the healings of these paralytics. At this point, you might be tempted to say that the healings of paralytics were common or ordinary in Peter's case. But consider this. The majority of miracles recorded in the Bible fall into three great epics. The first epic of miracles centered around the Exodus. We read about the burning bush, the ten plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea, the wilderness wandering, the fall of Jericho, the battle of Gibeon, etc. The second epic of miracles is centered around the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, where we read about the raising of the widow's son, the fire coming down on Ahaz's army, the dividing of the Jordan River, the increase in the widow's supply of oil, the floating of the axe, the curing of Naaman, just to name a few. And the third epic of miracles is centered around the ministry of Christ and his apostles. This is the greatest time of miracles and also the time in which the healing of Aeneas occurs. Now, when you compare the length of these epics versus the entire length of time which the Bible covers, then you'll see that these miracles are quite rare indeed. Or better yet, when you compare the length of these epics versus all of human history, we can easily say that miracles are an extraordinary event. Our second definition for a miracle dealt with an event being linked to a supernatural and personal cause. The fact that Peter acknowledges that it is Jesus Christ who heals makes it clear that it was the direct, supernatural, and personal intervention of Jesus Christ that brought about the healing of Aeneas. We see this in verse 34 where Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas didn't wonder, have to wonder who healed him. Clearly, it was Jesus Christ who healed him. 
we also need to note that the healing of Aeneas was not merely a work of providence. What is a work of providence? A work of providence is the ordinary work of God through secondary causes. There was no secondary cause in the case of Aeneas' healing. It was not a procedure that healed Aeneas, but rather the power of Christ that healed Aeneas. It was not a world-class physician that healed Aeneas, but rather it was the great physician who healed Aeneas. And neither was Aeneas' healing a work of magic. Peter was not like Simon the magician who practiced magic and amazed the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. In Simon's case, the magic or the power is controlled by the performer. But in Peter's case, the power is controlled by Christ. Peter was simply an agent or a vessel for the Lord to use. The miracles of Christ are according to his purpose. Christ is the source of the power in the healing. The third definition for a miracle involved the event being a sign of implications much greater than the event itself. Again, it is important to note that the miracles of Christ are always associated or tied to the message of Christ. The purpose of the miracles of Christ is revelation and edification. We see this purpose of the miracles of Christ clearly stated in John chapter 20, where the Apostle John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the miracles of Christ reveal the person and work of Christ. The miracles of Christ call us to believe in Christ, that we may have life. Again, the purpose of the miracles of Christ is to point us to the message of Christ. And we know that the message of Christ is what? It's the gospel. Miraculous healings reveal that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is the Lord, our healer. The healing of Aeneas points to our need for healing. It points us to our need for a healer. It points us to our need to be made whole. It points us to our need for Christ. The miracles of Christ also show us that Jesus has authority over illness and disease. But not only does Jesus have the authority over illness and disease, more importantly, he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, this is the mercy of Christ. The Christ does not give us what we deserve for our sins. The wages of sin is death. Christ doesn't give us our wages. Rather, he receives our wages on the cross. Christ pours out his compassion for the miserable and the unworthy. We are the miserable and the unworthy. And this is the mercy of Christ. Now note this, that the mercy of Christ has both a temporal element as well as a spiritual element. In the temporal sense, Jesus healed Aeneas of his physical suffering caused by paralysis. This is the mercy of Christ in a temporal and physical sense. After eight years of being bedridden, Aeneas was now able to rise and to make his bed. 
No longer was Aeneas dependent on others to make his bed. Now he could make his own bed. Because Aeneas received the mercy of Christ, he was no longer at the mercy of others. We can only imagine the sense of joy and and of freedom that Aeneas must have felt upon being healed. You know, at that moment that power returned to his body and, and to his muscles. All his family and friends must have rejoiced at the sight of Aeneas moving about by his own power. Aeneas' health had been restored, and he now enjoyed a better quality of life. He was truly a recipient of the mercy of Christ. So let us not overlook this truth that, that physical healing is a gracious gift of God, and it is a result of the mercy of Christ. The miraculous healings were a significant part of Jesus' ministry. Matthew makes this point in his gospel in chapter 4. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. You see, the healing of Aeneas through Peter's ministry was in actuality just an extension of Jesus' ministry. Jesus healed many during his earthly ministry, and he continued to heal many during his heavenly ministry via the earthly ministry of the apostles. The question, does Jesus still perform healing miracles today? Well, that's a topic and a sermon for another day. Perhaps you might want to debate that with John Rogers. He'll... He'll straighten you out. Another question, but does Jesus still physically heal people today? Most definitely, as I'm sure that many of us can attest to this truth. The fact that many of us are healed through the ordinary means of modern medicine and technology does not diminish the truth that Jesus heals physically. Whether by miraculous means or ordinary means, the source of all physical healing is Christ. Make no mistake about it. If you have ever been healed, it is due to the mercy of Christ. Now, in regards to physical healing, we need to avoid two errors. The first error is that we should never measure Jesus' love for us based on whether or not we've been healed. The second error we need to avoid is that we should never base our acceptance before God on the fact that God may have healed us from some type of illness or disease. Let us never equate physical healing to spiritual healing. We see Jesus' love for us in the cross. And our acceptance before God is based upon the cross. So now let's talk about how Christ healed Aeneas in a spiritual sense. In what way was Aeneas the recipient of the mercy of Christ spiritually? Now admittedly, the text does not explicitly say that Aeneas believed in Jesus. This omission may be due to the possibility that Aeneas was already a believer. Remember that Peter went down to the saints at Lydda. Or maybe it is due to the fact that physical and spiritual healing are sometimes linked together or associated with each other. In the Bible, sin is often associated with illness, just as forgiveness is often associated with healing. We see this in the Old Testament 
In Psalm 103, in which the Lord is described as the one who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And we see this in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the account of the healing of the paralytic, in which Jesus declares to the paralytic that his sins are forgiven even prior to healing him of his paralysis. Furthermore, there is an analogy between the physical and spiritual condition of Aeneas. This analogy can also be applied to us. Just as Aeneas was physically weak, so too we were spiritually weak. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, when we were unregenerate sinners, we were incapable of responding to the gospel. We had no ability to repent and believe in Christ. Apart from the mercy of Christ, Aeneas would not have been able to respond to Peter's command to rise. And apart from the mercy of Christ, we too would not have been able to respond to Christ's command to believe in him. If it were true that God helps those who help themselves, that would mean that God helps no one. Because no one is able to help themselves. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But not only was Aeneas in a helpless condition, he was also in a hopeless condition. And we, too, were in a hopeless condition prior to receiving the mercy of Christ. Ephesians 2 says, remember that we are at one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, what if God had left us in this helpless, hopeless condition? Brothers and sisters, what would we do? But thanks and praise be to God for the mercy of Christ. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the mercy of Christ displayed in the message of Christ, the gospel. Jesus saves. Peter puts it this way. He himself bore sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Furthermore, we see that the mercy of Christ was not only poured out on Aeneas alone, We see in verse 35 that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. The mercy of Christ displayed and proclaimed in the message of Christ led to the making of disciples of Christ. Once again, we see the Lord building and adding to his church. The mercy of Christ and the message of Christ was not just for Aeneas and for the early church. The mercy of Christ in the message of Christ is for us today, brothers and sisters. And I plead with anyone here who has not received the mercy of Christ, that today you would receive the mercy of Christ, that you would be like that tax collector, that you wouldn't even look up to heaven, that you would get on your knees and and pound your chest and say, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. And even if you are a believer here today, 
we know that we still continue to struggle with sin, that sin can sometimes be like a disease or like a paralysis, that being fearful of something or struggling with lust or lack of contentment can, can paralyze us. But the good news is that Jesus heals us. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has taken away the guilt. So if you are caught in the sin, I plead with you, repent and receive the mercy of Christ. Move on to the next miracle of Christ in our text, where Dorcas is restored to life. We find this account in verses 36 to 43. We see in verse 36 that Dorcas is a disciple. She is described as being full of good works and acts of charity. The NASB puts it this way. She was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, we don't know much about Dorcas. We don't know her age or whether she was single or a widow or how she became ill. But what we do know about Dorcas is that she was an exemplary Christian. I pray that we would all be Dorcases. said not dorks, that we would be Dorcases. So consider this. She gave of her time. The text tells us that she was full of good works. She gave of her treasure. The text also says she was full of acts of charity, which means she gave to the needy, to the poor. She also gave of her talents. We see in verse 39 that she made tunics and garments. So there you go. Dorcas gave of her time, her treasure, and her talents. Perhaps the reason why Dorcas was so generous was because she realized that her time was not her time. It was God's time. And that her treasure was not her treasure. It was God's treasure. And that her talents were not her talents. They were God's talents. Everything that she received, she received from the Lord. And she used it to honor him. While her life is commendable, and we do well to acknowledge her and others for their godliness, let's keep in mind that she was doing what she was supposed to be doing. She was doing what we were all commanded to do. We were saved not because of our works, but we were saved for good works. We often use Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 as a, as a proof text to demonstrate that we are saved by grace and that even our faith is a gift from God. However, let us not forget about verse 10, which says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember, faith without works is dead. Works are crucial to the Christian life. They absolutely don't save you, but they might be evidence that you are saved. Moving on to verse 37. Dorcas becomes ill and dies. What a stark reminder that we have that that death is no respecter of persons. Unless Jesus returns first, death is something that we will all experience. Dorcas' death reminds us that even the most obedient Christians suffer illness and die. Let us not go the way of the word faith and prosperity teachers and think that just because we have faith and are obedient to God, that that God is going to give us a long life, good health, a godly spouse, 
obedient kids, and lots of money. We would never say this out loud, but we are honest with ourselves. Sometimes we are tempted to live in this way. But brothers and sisters, God is worthy of our complete obedience. He doesn't owe us anything. Yet at the same time, God has graciously promised to give us the best thing, Christ. Move on. Verse 38. The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Again, the fact that Peter was nearby in Joppa is no mere coincidence, nor that it happened by chance. God is providentially directing, directing and ordering the steps of his people. He works everything according to the counsel of his will. Perhaps the disciples heard that Peter was nearby because the news of Aeneas' healing spread to Lydda. This is why we should be quick to tell others of the mercy of Christ in our lives. Our personal testimonies of the mercy of Christ in our lives is not the gospel. However, our personal testimonies can be used to adorn the message of Christ. Verse 39. After being urged by the two men to come to Lydda, Peter goes with them and is brought to the upper room where Dorcas lie dead. At this point in our text, we begin to see similarities between Jesus raising Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5 and Peter raising Dorcas. As a matter of fact, we could almost replace Peter in this text with Christ. Let's consider some of the similarities. Both were urged by someone to come to the aid of another. Jesus was implored earnestly by Jairus. Peter was urged by the two men. Both Jesus and Peter, at the request of those who urged them, went immediately to help the person in need. Jesus went with Jairus to tend to his little daughter who was at the point of death. Peter went with the two men into the upper room where Dorcas lie lifeless. We should note and consider that both Jesus and Peter were ready and willing to serve others. This is a side note. Serving others is often inconvenient. But Jesus nor Peter complained about being inconvenienced. Nor did they consider themselves above serving those who were beneath them. Jesus is God in flesh, and Peter was an apostle. Yet they both displayed great humility and compassion in serving others. They were merciful. So let us be reminded that we are never above serving others, regardless of our position or our title. Service is the way of the Christian life. I pray that we all would be ready, willing, and quick to serve one another. Now back to the similarities. Upon their arrivals, both Jesus and Peter were met with great sorrow. In Jesus' case, the people were weeping and wailing loudly. In Peter's case, the widow stood beside him weeping and showing him the garments that Dorcas had made. Both Jesus and Peter removed people from their presence before performing the miracle. Jesus put the people who laughed at him outside, while Peter put the widows outside. And my point in highlighting the similarities is that our ministry should be aligned with Christ's ministry. Now, I'm not talking just about formal or official ministries. I'm talking about how we serve one another and the attitude in which we serve. Whether you're at work, home, school, or in a neighborhood, whether you're a male, female, husband or wife, father or mother, brother or sister, child or adult, employed or a student, 
whatever status or position you have in life, our service and our attitude towards others should reflect Christ's service and Christ's attitude. It is God's will for us that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God will accomplish his will. Moving on. Once again, we see the miracle of Christ in Peter's ministry. Verses 40 and 41. Peter knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Again, this is amazing. What a miracle, and what a savior. Now, we recall our three definitions of a miracle, right? The event had to be extraordinary. The event had to be supernatural, linked to a personal cause. The event needed to be a sign of implications greater than itself. Again, this is a miracle for Christ because it was extraordinary. People being raised from the dead is not a common occurrence. It was also supernatural and linked to a personal cause. And we see this in Peter's kneeling down to pray. Peter understood that the power to raise the dead did not belong to him. Rather, that power belonged to Christ. Peter was not the personal cause of the restoration of life to Dorcas. Christ was the personal cause of the restoration of life to Dorcas. And lastly, the raising of Dorcas is a sign that points to new life, that points to the resurrection. But not only do we see the miracles of Christ, once again we see the mercy of Christ. Christ shows compassion to the miserable and the unworthy. We are the miserable and the unworthy. Again, he does this in both the temporal and in a spirit and in a spiritual sense. Raising Dorcas from the dead certainly brought relief to the saints and to the widows who loved her, as well as to all those who were recipients of her good works and her acts of charity. And in the spiritual sense, the mercy of Christ was lavished on all those who believed in the Lord. Verse 42 says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. It is because the mercy of Christ that people are saved. It is because of the mercy of Christ that you and I are saved. Peter puts it this way in his epistle. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Many and little were now God's people. Many were recipients of the mercy of Christ. And finally, in Peter's ministry, we once again see the message of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the raising of Dorcas points to the resurrection. Once again, we see the analogy between the physical in the spiritual, just as Dorcas was dead, so too we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Just as Dorcas had no ability or power to respond to Peter apart from the mercy of Christ, so we too have no ability or power to respond to Christ apart from his mercy. The miracles of Christ support the message of Christ. You might even say the miracles of Christ have a message. The message is this, just as Dorcas has been raised, so too Christ has been raised from the dead. And just as Christ raised Dorcas from the dead, so too will he raise us from the dead. 
This is the message of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. But it gets even better. Although Dorcas was raised to life, she would soon die again. But the next time Dorcas is raised from the dead, she will never die again. And when Christ raises us from the dead, we will never die again either. Why? It's because Christ is risen. This is the message of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Christ is risen. And because Christ is risen from the dead, so too shall we rise from the dead. Because Christ was made alive, so too we shall be made alive. This is the message of Christ. This is the gospel. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the mercy of Christ being proclaimed in the message of Christ, which is the gospel. I pray that everyone here would be a recipient of this mercy of Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let us pray.